I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more urgent books of the season is the one from Gregor Craigie on Borrowed Time, North America's Next Big Quake. It is a riveting book, as well as deftly researched, not just on the seismic activity in this part of the world, the Pacific Northwest, but throughout North America, like in central Canada and the eastern part of the United States. Mr. Craigie's gift in explaining to the lay reader the measure of earthquakes, what happens to trigger one, as well as other phenomena like volcanoes, which we ought to pay attention to, considering our proximity here to Mount St. Helens, as well as Baker and Rainier. Tsunamis are as well are examined, and their often devastating effect. I asked Gregor about what compelled him to write this book, as well as the complacency around us, Those of us who live uh, near the Pacific Ocean know we're due for the big one, but aren't necessarily prepared. I'll get Gregor to tell us what he's done in and around his home in Victoria, where he joined me from earlier this month, and what we all might do to uh, be better prepared. It's such a fascinating book and uh, necessary one. Uh, Gregor Craigie is the host of CBC Radio's On the Island in Victoria, British Columbia. Incidentally, I ask him... Uh, how he found uh, the time to write this book, considering his work there. He is a former CBS radio and BBC journalist who also reported the news on Public Radio International. His Twitter handle is at Gregor Craigie. This new book is published by Goose Lane Editions. Please uh, welcome to the Plant on Lead program, Gregor Craigie. Mr. Craigie, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. I'm uh, a great admirer of your work. Um, I don't listen to On the Island regularly because, you know, I'm in Vancouver. Yes. But yes. Uh, I do check the app uh, whenever uh, you've got a panel or, or, or an interesting guest, and I enjoy your work there. And then we, we've heard oh, you, you in, in recent months on uh, BC Today and, and filling in for um, Stephen on the early edition. That's right, um, yeah. You have this full-time job, as I mentioned. Where did you find the time to write this book? Well, I think it, it came once my kids got to a certain age. I have three boys, and the youngest is eight. And by the time he was about four, I, you know, I worked this uh, not very hospitable early morning shift, like Stephen Quinn on the early edition, and like other people in radio, early radio. Mm-hmm. And I'd be done by about one, and then I would spend the next eight or nine or ten waking hours looking after little kids. And once my youngest got to about four, I had the time to finally start writing all of this information I'd been collecting for years. I'd been a bit... Almost, I might even admit to being obsessed about earthquakes and the risk, and I'd been compiling it. And then somebody I knew said, hey, you know what? If you want to write this book and you want to be accountable, there's a great Masters of Fine Arts program out in Halifax. But you can basically do it with just a few visits to Halifax, and then you can do it at home. And, uh, and someone said, you should give it a try because uh, it might just help you keep on schedule and, and learn you, uh, or teach you how to develop it. And, and that's what I did. And so just a couple hours a day to being disciplined in the afternoon once my youngest started kindergarten over several years and after years of research and uh it's been sort of a drop 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 approach it's, it's a terribly engaging book and um you know we, we've uh, most of us i guess have had interest in earthquakes you know going back to as a as a kid say yeah, um yeah. but going back to it now and, and reading about it um it, it's um some of it is enjoyable but some of it is not yeah it's scary. I mean, this is the thing is that I, I was both, uh, I feel uh, roughly about 50-50, I was, I was split evenly between fascination yeah. and fear 
because it is scary to imagine. I, and I mean, you know, not to be too graphic about it, but depending on what kind of a house you live in or what kind of a building you live in, mm. where I live here in Victoria or in Vancouver, you know, if you imagine that that building collapsing as a not a, a, as you know, you just go to any earthquake around the world, including in developed countries with very strict building codes like like New Zealand, you imagine that building collapsing on you. And it's it's frightening or even terrifying to imagine. So yeah, I, I kind of went back and forth between fascination because the science is so interesting and the engineering is so interesting, and, and fear. Yeah. So you start the book by talking about the measure uh, uh, for an earthquake. Uh, the Richter scale is something that that a lot of us hear about on, on the news. But but yeah. in the book you use the moment magnitude scale. What does the number mean? I mean, one would just assume that the higher the number seven as opposed to three is is worse. It may be longer in duration, more shaking, say? Yeah, that's right. Well, it, well, it doesn't necessarily mean the duration, although often it coincides. The moment mm. magnitude scale uh, is, is a better way of measuring the overall size of the earthquake and the energy released. So it was, uh, it's, it's the one that's typically used by scientists. So if anybody you know, is following you on Twitter, Joe, or, or anyone like, let's say, earthquake guy, uh, John Cassidy from the mm. Geological Survey, uh, and they look at some of the earthquake tweets that come out, they'll, they'll, they'll see them recorded in moment magnitude. So you'll see like a magnitude uh, 7 earthquake that was, uh, maybe it was 7.4, I can't remember exactly, up in the Aleutians a month or two ago. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the big, uh, the big magnitude where we're told we can expect one day from uh, the Cascadia subduction zone is up to magnitude 9, which is essentially or practically about the biggest uh, earthquake you get. But the Richter scale uh, was developed and became very uh, popular in California by Charles Richter. But over the years uh, in, in international earthquakes that sometimes are just so much bigger, uh, they needed a different scale. So uh, Hiro Kanamori, a Japanese seismologist, and, uh, and Thomas Hanks, an American uh, seismologist, developed the, the moment magnitude scale in the 70s. That's what scientists use, and it, uh, it, it's what I use throughout the book uh, for consistency. Now, now um, we sort of know what happens during an earthquake above the surface. Um, yep. A building shake, um, uh, stuff happens where, where we are. Uh, what's happening below the surface? Uh, what are the plates doing? It's a good question, and it depends what type of earthquake. So, there, I mean, here in uh, in BC, southwestern BC, in the Pacific Northwest, especially if you if we consider, uh, let's say, a Victoria, Seattle, Vancouver Triangle, mm -hmm. we get three different types of earthquakes, and the the three different types of earthquakes have the uh, have the the faults or the or the the tectonic plates moving in different ways. So the big subduction quake that that we're all uh, now aware of in the last 25 years or so, off the the west coast of Vancouver Island and stretching all the way down to north uh, northern California, is a subduction uh, earthquake, and that means that you know the the massive plate is essentially uh, pushing up against the other one. And, and pushing under and pushing uh, the other continental plate up, and you, you've got this pressure with one subducting uh, eventually beneath the other in sometimes massive outbursts. That's how we get these big ones. But if you think of the more famous, well, at least to people in California, and mm -hmm. the, the one that often most North Americans probably associate with earthquakes, uh, the San Andreas Fault, it's, it's grinding uh, laterally uh, against itself. And, and people can often see it in parts of California. You know, it's visible on the surface. So uh, that's a totally different uh, movement. Uh, but we get those uh, and, and closer to the surface as well, crustal earthquakes here in the Pacific Northwest and the, and the southwestern B.C. And then the, the third type are these more mysterious ones called 
uh, deep, well, they're not called but deep, but they are deep uh, beneath the surface, intraslab earthquakes. And those are the ones that probably a number of your listeners will remember from, was it 2000 or 2001, you know, near Olympia, Washington. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Certainly felt in Vancouver and Victoria. Uh, caused a lot of damage in and around Seattle and around Puget Sound, but they're really deep, and they uh, they tend not to have as many aftershocks or even any aftershocks. They're extremely deep by comparison to uh, to uh, the, the the shallower crustal earthquakes, and so there are various types of ways that the the fault lines or the, the plates move against each other around the world. But those are the, the main three that we we uh, are prone to here in this part of the world. So these plates are moving all the time. But yeah. but um, what provokes them to, to move in the way that an earthquake, say, manifests itself up here? Well, that's a good question. I mean, so let, let's take the, the subduction zone one, the Cascadia one, where eventually that plate is going to, uh, it, it's pushing up against the continental plate, and it's moving, uh, you know, infinitesimally a year. You know, a few centimeters mm-hmm. that add up to a few meters over a century. Eventually, the uh, pressure will just... Uh, will just prove too much and i guess it's sort of the proverbial straw on the camel's back and the uh the fault zone uh lets loose and and you have this wave uh rip along the the subduction zone but uh, i mean scientists can't uh, tell you exactly what is the you know what is that that uh, straw on the camel's back so to speak they know a window for instance on the cascadia subduction zone which is roughly you know, over the last uh, 8,000 years. I think it's roughly between 200-odd years and 800 years. So we're in the zone now at 320. Mm. But, of course, we could be another one or two or 300 years away from it with the Cascadia subduction zone, and, and we could get others. But the exact trigger uh, is still is not exactly known, which is one of the reasons it makes it uh, practically impossible to predict the exact times of earthquakes. I mean, scientists can give us windows and, and times when it's more likely to happen, but, but there's no such thing at the moment as accurate prediction because they don't know the exact uh, uh, factor that, uh, or the, you know, the, the exact uh, straw that breaks the, uh, the seismic camel's back. Yeah. So you also, in the book, focus our attention on, on tsunamis and, and, and why we should worry about them. Um, what, what's the relation? Does an earthquake cause a tsunami? Yes, a primary. Most of the earthquakes, most of the tsunamis, rather, that we've heard about in the news, uh, you know, the, the giant one in 2004 and the, mm. and the giant earth, uh, earthquake and tsunami uh, that caused so much damage in Japan six or seven years later are, are triggered by massive subduction earthquakes under the ocean floor. So these subduction zones uh, are moving under the ocean floor, and what you have is, uh, is, is a giant... A uh, portion of the ocean floor literally spring up in some cases uh, many meters, and it just thrusts this huge wall of water, uh, this this huge wave in, in at rapid speed. So you know you think of the one uh, that, that hit uh, the Japanese coast mm-hmm. a, a little over ten years ago. I mean the, the first wave came in and, and then it uh, it pulled everything out and the whole harbor in many towns was exposed. And then the next one came in and they they came back and forth. Uh, but the the these are subduction zone earthquake-triggered tsunamis. But the thing about tsunamis is that there are other kinds. I mean, there's the possibility that the Fraser River Delta could have a, an undersea uh, landslide or a slump, and that could that cre- could create a mini tsunami in the Georgia Strait that, mm. that shoots across to the west from from the Fraser River Delta and hits places like Galliano Island. And, 
this is an inexact science, and I've talked to a number of scientists over this, and they're very hesitant to give any specific measurements, you know, for understandable reasons, Joe. They don't want to cause public right. panic. But there's the possibility that things like that, that we could have uh, mini tsunamis, which could still be deadly depending on where you are, that, that aren't even attached to an earthquake. But then there's, there's also tsunamis that are kind of in between, that they happen from something like an undersea landslide, but that undersea landslide was actually triggered by an earthquake. So that's what we saw on the Atlantic coast. And remember this, I mean, even though we're so focused on B.C. because yeah. we're here and because there's a, an identified risk, there's risk in other parts of North America. So in 1929, there was this massive magnitude 7 and change uh, earthquake on, uh, on the Atlantic coast off of Nova Scotia on the Scotian slope, and it triggered this truly colossal undersea uh, slump or landslide that went on for hours and severed transatlantic uh, uh, cables and so on, but it also caused uh, a tsunami to fire back to the northwest uh, and hit uh, the Burren Peninsula of Newfoundland and, and caused more than 20 deaths in remote fishing villages. So uh, there was an earthquake. People in Halifax uh, at the time ran out uh, you know, of like the Simpsons department store and mm -hmm. other places like this in terror, many of them still remembering that Halifax explosion from 12 years earlier. Right. And nobody was killed in the, in the uh, earthquake in Halifax, but it did, uh, unbeknownst to anyone at the time, create this tsunami that shot back and caused devastation uh, several hours later in Newfoundland. So the, the tsunamis can come from a, a number of different sources, but, but for the most part, we tie them to, uh, to earthquakes. And in the, in the book, at, at one point, I, I call it uh, the earthquake's deadly echo or the Pacific's deadly echo because the, the truly giant uh, subduction earthquakes in the Pacific tend to cause uh, giant tsunamis. And that's why now, uh, you know, we're on Twitter and wherever else and we're looking for these tsunami alerts right. and waiting until they're, they're, they're uh, taken down. And it was just a few years ago, three or four years ago here on the island, that there was a big one up in uh, Alaska again. And, you know, the firefighters uh, down the road from me and Oak Bay and Esquimalt were knocking on doors and sirens were going off and people were getting the push notifications on their phones saying, get out of your house. It was about 2 in the morning and head to high ground. And a lot of people missed it, but uh, a lot of other people were taking it to heat and, and just getting out of the house in their pajamas and going for high ground because this earthquake uh, triggered the tsunami warning. And in the end, it wasn't so big, but uh, there's yeah. a lot more attention on it in the last decade or so. Yeah, that's the thing that we shouldn't forget is that the damage is often worse from a tsunami than, say, an earthquake, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, the Alaska, the Great Alaska Earthquake uh, on Good Friday in 1964, now I can't remember the exact numbers without the stats in front of me, but the, the, the deaths due to the earthquake itself were fairly small. Like, uh -huh. I can't remember if it was nine or a dozen, but, but you know, and, and every life lost is a tragedy, of course, but it was a relatively small number, but there were, there were many times more people killed by the tsunamis in the Alaskan islands, and then all the way down the coast, you know, I mean, luckily, no one in Port Alberni died, uh -huh. but, but, you know, the, the town was devastated when it funneled up the Alberni Inlet, and then people died in Oregon, on the Oregon coast, in California, and, and as I say, the number of deaths from the tsunami was many times greater than the number of deaths directly attributed to the earthquake in Alaska. You took us a moment ago out east, and in the book you write about earthquakes, say, in Utah and Mississippi, as well as in the east coast of North America, like in New York and Ottawa. Um, do people on that side of the continent, do they have less to worry about? 
yes and no. This is, a, this is something I struggled with when I was first writing the book, because originally, Joe, I was just going to write about the West Coast, because mm-hmm. you know, I live here, sure. and uh, I've lived here for many years, and I, I lived in Vancouver before that, and this was my huge focus. But as I started looking into it more and more, uh, you know, uh, scientists and engineers would start saying, well, you know, actually, it's not just us. I mean, you know, I, I talked to a guy in San Francisco, uh, an engineer who had just come back from Utah, and, uh, and he said, oh, it's not just us on the coast. Like, Utah's got this risk. And anyway, you know, one expert would lead me to another. And then I, I, I talked to this eminent seismologist, Lynn Sykes, who is at uh, Columbia University's Lamont Doherty uh, Observatory. And I was asking him about some general principles. And I, I said, so, like, what, what do you think across North America? I was also talking to him about the risk posed by nuclear plants mm-hmm. in the seismic zones, which we here in B.C. and uh, the Pacific Northwest are really lucky we don't have any. Yeah, That's yeah. something we don't have to worry about. But in, in other parts of the continent, they do. And so I asked him a question, and I wasn't very careful in my phrasing. And I said, so, like, what, I mean, what do you think? What city actually is the most at risk in North America? And he said, well, no, hang on. He said, you, you have to differentiate between natural hazard and risk. And he said, so the natural hazard is just the, the, the potential for the earth in any given place and the, and the tectonic faults to rupture causing an earthquake. But the risk is the additional uh, uh, peril to human life and safety based on the cities and all the structures that have been built in and around that. So he said by that comparison, in some ways, some uh, scientists and engineers argue New York City is greatest at mm. risk. And I, I, I mean, that was news to me. I'd never heard this before. But sure enough, New York City, every few centuries, will get a sort of a moderate earthquake of in the magnitude of high fives or low sixes, magnitude six. But because, of course, so many people live in New York and there are so many unreinforced masonry brick buildings of a certain size, and in some parts of, of uh, Manhattan especially, yeah. uh, built on soft soil, you know, there's a huge risk there. So, I mean, that was a real eye-opener to me. And indeed, even just down the coast, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, there was a massive earthquake, probably around magnitude 7 in the 1880s, that caused huge damage. And that a number of seismologists I've talked to today have said, you know, I'm not going to put a number on it, but that earthquake there is exactly the same kind of structure that will hit New York City in the next uh, few centuries or maybe a few years, and and there's no point denying it. But but there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of awareness about that in a place like New York, possibly because they have so many other things to yeah. uh, to worry about. And in, there's a, a part in the book where you talk about uh, the government in uh, New York State having done some um, I guess some mitigating work in terms of, of uh, securing uh, nuclear sites there, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the government for a long time uh, was working on getting the, uh, the the big nuclear plant, which is called Indian Point, which is in the greater New York area. You know, it's uh, I, and I can't remember exactly how many uh, miles or kilometers it is away, but it's suitably close. I mean, you know, it's within an hour or so of the city mm-hmm. that it was a huge concern. And, th- and this is one of the reasons I called Lynn Sykes, this eminent seismologist. He, he said, you know, we need to get rid of and we need to close this down. And in fact, the New York State government was convinced to do that. So they are decommissioning the reactors and, uh, and, the, and, the, and, uh, and the company that owns it is doing it and they're switching to natural gas and various other issues, uh, pardon me, various other energy sources. But it is happening, although the, the question, so, so that was welcome news to a number of uh, people who, especially seismologists and engineers, who were worried about the risk of a nuclear plant melting down, as we saw in Fukushima in mm-hmm. Japan 10 years ago, and imperiling a city like New York with 
you know, over 10 million people in the greater metropolitan area. Uh, but, the, but there are still concerns about that and other ones. I mean, there's ones in Pennsylvania, and, and you know, there's ones in New Brunswick on the Bay of Fundy, not yeah. too far from St. John, that makes some people nervous because uh, it's not just the question about the, the nuclear plant operating. It's also the, the storage of, of spent nuclear fuel afterwards, and they have to be kept in these giant cooling uh, ponds. They're, they're, they're almost just a bit, Joe, like really deep swimming pools, yeah. but they're kept there for thermal and, and uh, uh, insulation, you know, for, for cooling in the long term. And uh, I talked to uh, the former head of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and she was worried that American nuclear plants, uh, and her name is Allison McFarlane, and interestingly, since I've interviewed her, she's moved on to UBC, so she's now in Vancouver, but she was telling me that her concern was that there were no requirements for how much excess capacity U.S. nuclear plants had in these cooling pools. So she, she said, well, it would just be sensible to, to, for the government to require that nuclear, nuclear uh, reactors have all this excess storage capacity so that if they have to shut down in the event of a, an, an earthquake or some other disaster, they could transfer all their, their nuclear fuel from the reactor to these, these ponds, but, uh, pools. But her concern is that they're not required to do that, and for cost-saving measures, many uh, nuclear plants may not have enough space so that they could shut it down and put the, the nuclear fuel uh, in, in a, a safe uh, cooling pool. But uh, So that still remains to be uh, determined if that, that would be an issue in a, in a future earthquake because uh, the last I checked before the, the, the final publication, there are still no requirements for American nuclear operators to... Uh, provide that information. Uh, so, so I mean, Allison McFarland was telling me some of them are doing it, but but others are not, and we have no way because they're not compelled to make this information public of knowing who is and who isn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's move on to volcanoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, a, a, a more more um, I don't know what's more frightening here as I go down my list of notes. Yeah. Um, yeah. My um, elementary school knowledge of, of volcanoes is that that uh, or mountains, I should say, are, are created because the plates go up against each other and, and form. Is that right? Uh, essentially, yeah. You've got, I mean, you've got these big plates uh, either pulling apart mm-hmm. or or pushing back together. So under the sea floor, where where two ocean pl- uh, plates come apart, if, if you think out on the Pacific. Then you've got uh, uh, you, you've got uh, liquid uh, magma and so on coming up and hardening and making new ocean floor, uh-huh. and then on the other end you've got uh, you've got volcanoes letting off steam as it were and and, and erupting. That, that's kind of the other end of the, the other side of the equation. So so in in where we are in this part of the world, we're in the vicinity of um, Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, and of mm-hmm. course Mount St. Helens, yeah. uh, which erupted uh, forty one years ago now. Yeah. Um, we ought to think about volcanoes, and, and are, are the eruptions that, that, that happen, are they caused by earthquakes? Well, yeah, it, yes and no. I mean, it's all, in, in a way, it's a, a bit which is the chicken and which is the egg. But often the, uh, the chicken is uh, an earthquake or a series of earthquakes. Before, because before the 1980 Mount St. Helens blast, uh, blast, there were all sorts of uh, earthquakes, and, and, uh, and there was a whole uh, lot of seismic activity that basically uh, triggered scientists and, and locals to the, the fact that something was going on. And so, uh, yes, and in fact, uh, the, the, the massive eruption on May 18th uh, followed uh, an earthquake as well. And, and so, uh, yeah, th- I mean, it's essentially uh, 
simply put, it's it's an earthquake-triggered uh, event, but it, it's not always uh, necessarily in that order. It, I mean, it depends on the event, but certainly in Mount St. Helens, it was. And, and this is one of the reasons that uh, the U.S. Geological Survey in the Pacific Northwest and uh, the Canadian Geological Survey, Survey have so many monitors around active volcanoes, which extend uh, right across the border. I mean, Mount Baker is probably the most prominent one. You know, I, I see it on my when I'm walking the dog at the mm-hmm. beach here in Victoria, and I know you guys see it so prominently in Vancouver and New West and Abbotsford. So really, that is the most direct one with, with the most direct uh, impact on most people's lives, or potentially uh, direct impact on most people's lives in Metro Vancouver. But it goes, it goes I mean, the, the chain of volcanoes keeps going up, but it's it just into less populated areas. So when we hear that it's active, um, we also hear sometimes that, that uh, there's uh, some pressure dissipating, I guess, in the form of steam. Uh, one, yep. would assume, uh, one would assume that if that's happening regularly or happening as we speak, um, that um, that, that um, releases some pressure and we won't see a big bang like we did in 1980 with Mount St. Helens. But that's not true, right? It's not always true. And this is another question that gets asked of earthquakes, uh, Joe, is, wait a minute, if we're having a bunch of tremors here mm-hmm. over the course of many weeks or months, does that mean that the fault is actually just slowly and, and more uh, peacefully releasing the pressure and in some cases that appears to be the case and then in other ones it doesn't i mean there was the was it 2009 there was this uh, tragic earthquake in italy where uh, that question was asked of scientists and and it was such a difficult answer for them to give that they you know they said well we, we can't really be sure uh, but a public safety official told them well Yes, that's what it means. And so uh, there was a lawsuit and criminal charges later against these scientists uh, because some members of the public and Italian prosecutors felt that they had issued this false sense of ease that, yes, if you have this increased seismic activity beforehand, it reduces the risk. And, and it, I mean, it may be the case in some seismic events that that is the case, but we can't presume it, and it's, it's certainly often the exact opposite, like Mount St. Helens, you know, where there was very little seismic activity for years, and then it was just slowly rumbling to life, and then the big show was, mm-hmm. uh, was, was the May 18th eruption. And so, yeah, it, it, I, I, it seems intuitive to a lot of us non-scientists that if you, uh, if, if you have a rumbling and rumbling and rumbling, that it must be less pressure, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a smaller eruption in the end. It could mean that the climax is still to come. You write in the book, um, throughout the book, about the indifference that there is. Um, I mean, yeah. those of us that live here, uh, we, we assume there'll be a big one, but because it's so unknowable, we just we've moved on to other concerns, even, yeah. and uh, or, or we would have moved um, if we were so worried, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing that I, I like. I mean, I I grew up in Calgary, and I moved to Vancouver in my twenties. Uh, in the, about 1996, and so you know, I had always associated earthquakes with California, and mm-hmm. so I, I, I enrolled at BCIT in Burnaby after I got out of university. And I, I, the fir- one of the first things I noticed were these steel X's, these kind of reinforcements in some windows on the lower floors of some of the classrooms. Mm-hmm. And I started asking around, and people were saying, "Oh yeah, we can actually get earthquakes here." But uh, what was interesting to me, and and my my interest grew, is that more and more. What I heard people who who have been born and raised here say was something to the effect of, 
Yeah, but you know, you don't need to worry about that because uh, it, it, I felt a rumbling back in 1963 when I was in high school, or or oh yeah, there was a, another shaker back in 1967 or whatever. Uh, you know, and and don't worry about it because it's not going to kill us. It, it, so in other words, we've lived this far without it being a serious concern. So you know, don't waste your time worrying about it. But to me, uh, that doesn't entirely make sense. Uh, nor does it make sense to, get, to set your hair on fire yeah. and move. And I, and I think, and, and researching and writing this book has, has convinced me of this, that there is a middle way. And this is what, a lot of, what I think a lot of emergency planners uh, take, is that, look, let's not ignore this. This is a huge potential threat. And it may not happen until most of us are dead. But it could happen two minutes after you and I get off this phone call, Joe. And I mean, uh-huh. and when I say it, I am talking catastrophic uh, level uh, damage. Like the city of Victoria ha- had uh, the Association of Professional Engineers in British Columbia uh, do a study of its building stock, the whole city, yeah. and they found in the two worst case scenarios, both the Cascadia uh, subduction zone and a crustal earthquake, a smaller one but closer to Victoria, that two out of every three structures, like homes, apartments, offices, churches, restaurants, you name it, two out of every three would be uh, demolished, or would have to be demolished. So about 5% would collapse, and two out of every three would be uninhabitable. Like, just imagine your neighborhood or your city having in one one event, one afternoon, two out of every three buildings are gone, or or are are deemed for destruction and or gone. So... So that's what's at risk. And so a lot of emergency planners, and I've kind of come to this conclusion too, say, look, we need to start uh, slowly but methodically and with intent doing more to prepare for this. It doesn't mean we have to panic, but we shouldn't ignore it. And, and you know, I, I mean, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of people, including myself, you know, over many years, I've lived in a house that I'm only finally starting to do uh, the necessary earthquake fixes on. It's a 100-year-old house. But, you know, I, I was in Vancouver uh, over the summer and just walking through certain neighborhoods that I've written about, like even just driving through the downtown east side, and the yeah. number of reinforced brick buildings which no one has a plan for uh-huh. is staggering. So that's, in, 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 a, in a way, that's the conclusion of my book, that we don't need to be afraid of earthquakes, but we need to do a fair bit more to prepare for them happening. What are some of the things that you're doing in your own house? Say that I mean, you write about that in the book, and I found that interesting because it, it gave me food for thought as to what I might or might think of doing. Yeah. Um, it, it does seem costly, but but I understand that you're doing a lot of it yourself. Is that right? It is, and I was re- I really appreciated the fact. So, like a lot of people in uh, Metro Vancouver, I've got a pretty big mortgage, and you know I'm going to get there. I'm going to pay it off, and also I'm very privileged to have a single family home largely because of my age and so on. Like, if I were starting out now, I'm not mm. sure I could afford it. But we've got a 110-year-old house, and it's a, a two-story, and uh, uh, it's, uh, the concrete was mixed back in 1912 by hand. And on top of that concrete are old 2 by 4 uh, Douglas fir posts, and then these uh, horizontal boards nailed onto it, and then the cedar shakes. So I hired um, a, a seismic engineer by the name of Graham Taylor, and he's done a lot of schools for the provincial program, like he's done earthquake retrofits for them. Mm-hmm. And he also works with homeowners. And he came in and he, he did everything on my house. He assessed, he looked at the land under the house, which is super important, like is it soft or hard. And I'm lucky because I'm on uh, bedrock, which doesn't add to the shaking. If you're on clay, it adds to the shaking and mm-hmm. amplifies it. But if you're on bedrock, you'll basically get the full earthquake, but nothing more. Uh, so he looked at that, He looked at the, 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 and then he looked at the type of construction, he inspected everything, and then uh, he uh, drew up some plans for me, and he said, I can, I can point you to a number of construction companies that will, that will do this for you, or if you're really tight for cash, like a lot of people, you know, with big mortgages and so on, 
and you have some basic uh, handy knowledge, you can do it yourself. And so basically, in a nutshell, what he's prescribed for me, and I, I'm doing it as we speak, uh, is uh, the, the, the basement wall between my main floor and the concrete foundation of the house. Mm-hmm. It's just got those two-by-fours, and so the shaking of the house could make uh, the, the top two floors collapse onto the basement. So that's what we want to avoid. Most of the rest of the house wouldn't collapse, he says. But what you need to do then is, is pull off either in the inside or the outside, uh, the, if there's drywall on the inside or, or siding on the outside, and uh, to his, his specifications, he's measured out how they should go, I need to put a nail in three-quarter-inch plywood along the studs so it'll really stiffen uh, the basement of the house. And there, there's more to it than that, but I'm just trying to put it conversationally mm-hmm. here. Like, he's given me very detailed plans. Uh, a lot of people will hear that you want to bolt your house to the foundation, and, and indeed he prescribes that for a lot of houses. In my case, he didn't, and, and I won't go into too much detail about that, but he said, in your case... With this old house, you'll probably just get a leaky basement. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I don't want people to hear that and say, oh, you don't have to bolt it or you do. The point is uh, consult an expert or an engineer. And, you know, and I'm not shilling for anyone here, Joe. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like I have no financial stake in this whatsoever. It's cost me um, the whole the engineering consulting and so on when it's all done. I think it'll cost me less than 2000 Right. And uh, maybe the ballpark 2000 And the material... You know, I'm, I'm probably going to do this for a similar amount of money, depending on what I do with the siding and depending on the price of lumber. I don't know if you've been to, you know, Home Depot right, or yeah. Rona or whatever, but that plywood's about twice as expensive as it was a year ago. But the point is that it doesn't have to be expensive. Now, a lot, of, like if you were in a strata, of course, or if you're in a bigger apartment building, it may be a more expensive fix. But there's just so many things you can do if you start looking at it, so many ways we can uh, minimize or at least reduce the risk. That, that I, I think all building owners, and, and even if you're a renter, you could talk to your landlord about it and, 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 and start considering what are the things you can do apart from getting a kit ready and all the supplies and so on, which, of course, is essential if you want to be ready. Yeah, it made me uh, think that this weekend is, is the, the weekend I'm going to go and, and figure out how to turn <laughs> off the gas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Have you got gas in your house? Yeah. yeah a lot of people do, it, and it's. Uh, I think it's worth it. I know a number of people who just ha- hang a little spanner, you know, a little wrench mm-hmm. uh, uh, off it, so that in worst case scenario, even you know, it, it, like even my twelve year old could go out there and just turn it off. Now, in my case, I don't have it, but my next door neighbor has it, and uh, I know they they've got a little wrench that they can just turn it off. But what you can also do is, and actually, it's mandatory for this in many parts of California is you can have a gas fitter, a pipe fitter, install a, uh, an automatic shutoff valve. Mm. Now, I have a friend who did this. She has gas in her house, and uh, she, was, <laughs> she was a little frustrated with me for the first few weeks because she said, I listened to you and I got this done, and now some big truck went by the house, and it shut off the gas. <laughs> and, you know, this is not convenient in the middle yeah. of winter. But she said then the guy came back, and they just had to adjust it, and it's been great for the last three or four years, and uh, he's confident it'll, it'll turn off when there's a real shaking, too. But, but that's, that's a great point. The gas is something you want to turn off right away. So whether it's just knowing where it is and telling the family or, or telling your neighbors if you're in a strata, just know even simple things like that can be the, the difference between life and death or losing your home with a, with a fire after the earthquake. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of earthquakes, uh, if, if it's not the tsunami, it's like the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Fire is as destructive, if not more destructive, than the original earthquake. Indeed. Um, near the end of the book, you talk about um, the complacency that, that a lot of us have. Um, you, you, you talk about attitudes changing, and I, I don't know if I, um, 
after the experience of the last 18 months of the pandemic or, or the heat yeah. domes of the past summer, the, the yeah. protests of September 1st, um, believe uh, or, or as, uh, am as hopeful as you are um, yeah. that we can get through these things together? Well, I, you know what, I'm not going to argue with you, your uh, sense of despair, if that's what it is, or, or even just uh, pessimism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll let you uh, describe it the way you want. But no, I, I mean, and, and, you know, inevitably writing this about earthquake preparation, of course, with half of these things, I'm reminded of uh, what we need to do with climate change. And you're right, the heat don't put such a depressing uh, and a, a oppressing uh, exclamation point on it. It was just such a, a visible reminder of what a dire circumstance we're in with uh, climate change and, and, and how it can affect us. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a daunting task to get us to act together. And in the same way that we're seeing with these anti-mask and anti-vax protests, you know, every time a community has uh, tried to, or some people in a community have tried to say, hey, let's, uh, let's take these schools out of tsunami zones and let's build new ones up, up top. Like one of the places I found interesting was Seaside, Oregon. Uh, the, the school principal and, and superintendent tried to do this, and he kept getting pushback uh, in the same way that you get pushback on action on climate change mm-hmm. or the pandemic or so on. So there are lots of reasons to uh, to, uh, to to feel a despair and to wonder how are we going to uh, uh, combat not just complacency but denialism and, and pushback and also some of the legitimate reasons. I mean, not everybody can afford to fix their house. But one of the guys who inspired me the most was this guy, Doug Daugherty, in, uh, in Seaside, Oregon. And I'm actually just, I just got my books in the mail, and I'm going to send him off a copy. He was, for years, he was a school teacher and then a school principal in the small town and then the superintendent. And he, he found these old maps about the, the 1964 Alaska earthquake and tsunami that hit Cannon Beach in Oregon and, mm-hmm. and all these places where he was in charge of, of student safety. And he would say to his res, uh, neighbors and so on, you know, uh, uh, I've looked at it. And there, a tsunami is going to wipe out all of our schools. Like all but one of the six or seven schools are in a tsunami zone, and we've had them assessed, and actually the schools are going to collapse. So even if some kids and staff get out, uh, they're, they're going to be washed over in 15 minutes by a tsunami. And even after that, if they could run out of town, most of the bridges that mm. separate most of the town from the mainland and the hills where they could run to safety, they're going to collapse too. So he had all these reasons for despair, and for years people kept saying, you know what, Doug, just stop talking about this. It makes us stupid for looking here, <laughs> living here. It makes us look stupid. We don't want to talk about this. Or people saying, ah, you're a worrywart. Like, you know, yeah. it's a fairly small town. People would call him uh, Cassandra, and some people made fun of him. And But he said, you know what, you just have to keep going. Uh, day after day, year after year, meeting after meeting. And he said, I slowly got there. I slowly trained my staff in ham emergency operations. We started the first uh, tsunami evacuation drills in America or North America for the schools, and, and then he, he finally got enough people together, and they held a, a town a town vote on spending, you know, a, a, an American municipal bond type thing where they raise, uh, it was over $100 million, uh, to close all their schools and build a new one up, uh, way up above the tsunami zone, just outside of town, and sure enough, people didn't want to pay the money, and but he kept going. He went back to the drawing board, kept convincing more and more people, worked with Weyerhaeuser, the forest company, to donate some land, bring the cost down. He just kept, uh, uh, and then he retired, and he kept doing this for a dollar a year on a donation basis, finally got it to another plebiscite, and a majority of the people in Seaside, Oregon, uh, did that, and they're just opening it this year. And that, to me, I know it's just, it's just a town, and, and this is a much bigger issue, but I really think that, you know, if it's on your block, 
yeah. or, or, yeah. or in your neighborhood or whatever, you can affect change. Like I mentioned this to on, on my block about 20 neighbors, and three of us went in together, and we got an earthquake uh, accelerometer installed so that if there's an earthquake, uh, we'll be able to, to read what the pressure was under our house. And, and my neighbors and myself are all doing these fairly simple fixes just to make our our houses safer. But one of my neighbors who got in on this, he said, you know what else? I'm going to start a block watch and we're going to get ready for emergency in general. Mm-hmm. So I think coming together and working with neighbors and, and the people around us, if, you, if you're inclined, if you, if you think, I want to do something about this, I think you know we can get there slowly. Whether, whether it will be in time or not, I don't know, but it, 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 it helps to get started. This care, this, this um, forethought, if you will, where do you think this comes from? I mean, you mentioned in the, in the, in the front of the book, um, uh, interviewing uh, people who've um, uh, survived, say, deadly earthquakes, and yeah. and having a real feeling of um, uh, uh, feeling similar to, to 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 your own experience in the past. Yeah, well, I so I I have uh, like a lot of people. I've only uh, felt sort of moderate earthquakes. You know, once where where I sat up in my bed and I thought, oh, what is yeah. that? And then it was over. So I've never lived through uh, a huge one myself, a deadly one, but. When I was 12 years old, I was in a, a deadly car accident, and it was my whole family. And, uh, you know, my sister was seriously injured. You know, like, they required years of hospitalization. Uh-huh. My dad was killed. My mom and I were both uh, seriously injured. And it happened like like that. I'm yeah. snapping my fingers. Like, like zero warning, out of the blue. And I, I won't, this isn't a book about uh, uh, car crashes, but it just happened so suddenly, and it was so violent, and then it was over in, like, five seconds or maybe ten tops. That it, it's absolutely shaped my whole life. And my, my mom and my sister and I, were, uh, after my dad died, it was just the three of us, and I, I dedicated the book to my mom and my sister because they carried on. But they know what it's like to have something come out of the blue with no warning and then just change everything with fatal consequences. And I recognize something with almost every single person I, I interviewed on a one-on-one basis who'd lived through a deadly earthquake. I mean, it was just they would just talk about how you didn't see it coming. It was yeah. it was the, the most terrifying thing they had ever experienced, bar none. They didn't see it coming, and they can never uh, forget it. And, I, and what, what I've heard from almost all of them, no, I, actually all of them, is you don't know what it's like unless you live through it. And, and that really mm-hmm. reminded me of the car uh, the car crash I was in as a kid. I just thought, I think one of the reasons so many of us are complacent is we just don't fundamentally get how awful it is. And, and in a sad way, I think that's one of the things that the, the proliferation of social media, or sorry, maybe an effective way, you know, all the sad images and, and video of the tsunami mm-hmm. that hit Japan and so on, I think as, as awful as those tragedies were, uh, hopefully they, they are and they have compelled a lot more people to take it seriously because, you know, seeing is not the same as living through it, but, but it, it, I think it's convinced a lot more people in the last 10 or 20 years to take the risk seriously. You've written, Gregor, one of the, um, uh, I think, one of the more important books of the season. Um, it's a compelling read and engaging one, and um, it, it'll give a, a people who read it a lot of uh, uh, time to think about what they need to do in, in their own lives and their own communities. Um, I've enjoyed speaking with you today. Congratulations on the book, and good luck with it. Joe, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for your questions and, uh, and for reading and taking the time. All the best, eh? The Twitter handle is at Gregor Craigie. The book is called On Borrowed Time, North America's Next Big Quake. It is published by Goose Lane Editions. Gregor Craigie, its author, joined me on the line from Victoria, British Columbia, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantov.